the solar screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asked, what can we learn from movies to enhance our role-playing game experience? This season, we're all about kids on bikes movies, where kids ages 18 years or younger get themselves into and out of trouble and keep their agency while doing so, usually in a specific location, which is essential to the plot. I'm Rafe Telsch, film critic. And I'm Drew Meyer, gaming enthusiast. And today, we're talking 1986's Stand By Me, based on the Stephen King novella The Body. The screenplay was written by Bruce A. Evans and Reynold Gideon, fantastic name, directed by the vastly underappreciated Rob Reiner and starring Will Wheaton, Corey Feldman, River Phoenix, Jerry O'Connell, and Kiefer Sutherland, among others. Yes. (laughs) You've been waiting for this one, haven't you? I have, and yet I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I gotta say, it's probably been 25 years since I had seen it last. Oh, wow. um, and it was one of those films. We'll get into it, but it's just like, it's, you said it. I was surprised you said it in the last episode. And now I'm just kind of like, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Watched it. Really looking forward to talking about it. it. It had been a while since I watched it as well. And I, I had the advantage of introducing it to my girlfriend who had never seen it before. So I mm. got to not, you know, literally watch it with fresh eyes, but I got to get a, a fresh perspective on it because I will be the first to admit, and I'm sure we will talk about this numerous times over the course of this episode, that this is my nostalgia pick. This is uh, my frog dreaming in a lot of ways. This is the one that, you know, I grew up with and, and, and that there's some good in that and there's some bad in that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And absolutely. And just like frog dreaming, um, there are conversations that need to be had sure. about this film. Um, and that that's the beautiful thing. Uh, but before we talk about this movie, let's talk about other movies. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded last. Rafe, have you seen anything, played anything, or listened to anything that you think myself or the listeners should uh, know about? I, I should have a ton of things to list here because, as I talked about on the last episode, it's Oscar catch-up season. The Oscars are a week and a half away at the point that we're recording this, a week away at the point that this is being released. Uh, so I should have watched a ton more Oscar movies, but unfortunately, due to some health issues going on, I have not been able to sit and watch many movies. Uh, so the only one that I've watched that, that and is definitely worth mentioning, is uh, The Fablemans. And if you don't know The Fablemans, this is Steven Spielberg's newest film. It is uh, kind of an autobiography for him. It is based on his own experiences growing up. And given how strongly Spielberg's DNA is wound into the kids on Bikes genre. I mean, you look at the Goonies he produced, uh, you know, Super 8 we've already talked about. That is, uh, you know, a, a, an homage to his his first films and, and Amblin Entertainment and such. Uh, you know, th- this is an important movie as far as the genre goes in a lot of ways. It does have kids on bikes in it. It actually has more kids on bikes in it than the movie we're going to be talking about today. Um, Most movies it, do. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, but it, it it's more – it's it, it is a coming-of-age film, as a lot of these kids on bikes movies are – in that it is identifying that moment when you start to see your parents as real people, uh, you know, flaws and all. And that really made me think a lot in the same way that a lot of these movies that we watch do. So I really enjoyed it. It is a little lengthy, I think, uh, but I enjoyed it and I do recommend it. Cool. Anything uh, game-wise? I know that you've had some no. issues. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, <laughs> my gaming group actually canceled our last session because of my health stuff going on. <laughs> I told them not to. Well, that's actually probably for the best, but... Nah, I would have been fine. What about you, Drew? What have you seen or played? 
Well, um, let's see. It's strangely enough, uh, not a lot of movies. Um, I have decided on the 24th of February to rewatch Twin Peaks, um, which you know nice. ties in a little bit with the kids on bikes that we did with um, our, our friends over. At, oh my god, my brain, Eric Malinsky. Yes, <laughs> sorry, Eric. And I haven't seen it in 30 years, so I've been mostly watching that. I have never watched Twin Peaks. Well, um, <laughs> I think you would be if you did watch it. You would tell me that I had been playing the the Lynchian world wrong, but we hadn't really got into right, the deep right. Twin Peaks of it. It's fantastic. It's been on my um, list for. You know, forever. I'd only watched the original series. Sure, there's so much good television out there that why would I go back and rewatch anything? And just a number of different things uh, just at around the same time popped up and reminded me that Twin Peaks is a fantastic uh, show that. Uh, I'm a very different person than I was 30 years ago. So uh, I, I know that I, I am watching it with new eyes and I'm enjoying it more. But that's not a movie. Here is the movie. I've got two for you. Uh, the first one is called A Matter of Life and Death. It's from 1946. It's a, it's a Powell and Pressburger film. Same folks who did The Red Shoes. Okay. I had never heard of it before. It's on a Criterion. It's one of the best films I've ever seen. Really? Um, you say that so much about movies that you're introducing me to, and I haven't gotten a the chance to watch. This is like the third one in like the last. Here's few the months. thing, absolutely, and and I say the same thing about the train. I still hold still that 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 is one of the best films I've ever seen, and it's one of the benefits of doing what I'm doing, which is watching, going out of my way to find really highly regarded films that I have, I'm not familiar with. So this is one that's on the Criterion Collection. It's in the 1001 movies you should see before you die, which I think is a an interesting premise for a book, but it's also really subjective. Um, however, most of the films that I've watched recently that I have recommended to you have been a part of that collection. So now I'm thinking about maybe I need to buy that book and look it over. Sure. Anyway. Um, I will watch every movie that these two directors who wrote, direct, uh, and produced themselves. I'll watch everything they do based on solely on this one. Uh, it's a David Niven film. It's um, mm, I, what to say without I listened to two minutes of audio and went, no, I have to watch this. Um, it is a is a film about the afterlife and life, love, and the afterlife. It's very well done. It's maybe fifteen minutes too long. There is a part doing some research that they threw in for reasons. But if you think about it, it's, it takes place shortly after uh, – actually, no, during the Second World War. And this is only a couple of years after it, it completed. So there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of theology. There's a lot of philosophy. There's some fantastic acting. But the set design and the ideas and the technical aspects for the time period, it's in color in 1946 wow. um, in a way that you've not seen before. Uh, and how they did it is is really cool. It's I I think people should watch it. There's a perfectly viewable, crisp, lovely version print that's available on YouTube. I'll okay. send you links. It's you know I will put links in the show notes, folks. If you want to check it out yourselves, if you've got roughly two hours, maybe a little less than two hours, I think it's worth your time. So yeah. And then the second one is I always watch a movie on my birthday. Um, this year we watched uh, one that my wife had been trying to get me to watch for many, many, many years. It's called The Man from Snowy River. It's from 1982. It's an Australian film. It's essentially an Australian Western, but it feels like a live action Disney film. So it's fairly chaste. The action has, it has moments of great horse acting uh i know it's a weird thing to say but it, you know it's, it's just something that's done and the landscape's beautiful but the reason i bring it up it's not really something to talk about here is it an incredible film i thought i liked it fine the reason i'm bringing up is it was filmed in the same location as 
um, the quest in Frog Dreaming. I mean, it's it's the really? same park. Yeah, it's in the same park. Now they don't find the Billabong, but you know it, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's still roughly the the same kind of place. It's supposed to be set somewhere else, uh, New South Wales, I believe. But um, yeah, they filmed in the same relatively the same location and only a couple of years uh, different. So when the kids are trekking through the jungle, uh, that's sort of what they're they're trekking through. So yeah. I thought that was a really fun connection. Uh, why not mention it? So yeah, sure. uh, role-playing wise, haven't done much of it. A um, couple of games with some various groups, but um, podcast wise, I'll save that for the intermission. I, I've got a couple new ones that I've been listening to that I like, but uh, I, I really want to talk about this film. So I think we should do that. And we're going to do that beginning with your elevator pitch. So Rafe, someone has never heard of this movie before, probably because they're young. Um, <laughs> how do you pitch stand by me to someone? I think I pitch it with the movie's opening line. I was 12 going on 13. The first time I saw a dead human being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you tell them, Hey, you know, Stephen King occasionally writes films that aren't horror films, but turn out to be some of the best movies ever made. Well, this is one of them. Right. right. And my girlfriend watched the whole movie, had no idea it was based on a Stephen King film until the end. Oh, credits. cool. Uh, or Stephen King story. And I think that's fair because there's a certain bias that we, that folks have. If you don't realize that Stephen King, you know, uh, now I've forgotten what the Shawshank Redemption's original title. I I can't remember the actress's name. The uh, Rita, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption, which is in the same collection of stories as this, right? Right. This is the four seasons. Four seasons. Yeah. It's this, that, and the running man, I believe is the third one that came out of that one. No, I think running man is a a different collection. And then there, the other one's called the breathing method. I know that three out of the four movies, uh, three out of the four stories have been adapted into have made. Yeah. So yeah, uh, the, the something. Yeah. Well, you can tell how uh, well we have prepared. (laughs) I've read this factoid like 10 times in the last two weeks. Um, at this moment, not pulling it up, which is perfectly fine. All right, so that's the elevator pitch. It's a great opening line. I certainly would be uh, remiss if you didn't draw my attention with that. Right. Um, so could you quickly kind of tell me what the movie's about? Four f- young men, uh, friends, group of friends, uh, go on a quest to find the dead body of a young man in their town. Yeah, there you go. Easy enough, right? And that makes perfect sense. And so... We have talked a little bit about this movie when we were talking about Now and Then. We are definitely going to be talking about Now and Then quite a bit. Um, And I think there are enough similarities, not only in the movie section, but in how we would uh, adjust this for a role-playing game that this should be very interesting. I feel like I've had to put a lot of effort into uh, this one, not in a bad way. Yeah, I, I, sorry about you, that. <laughs> you, you, you know, folks at home, it's an audio medium. You can't see the the look that Rafe is making, but it's not a bad way. It's not in a bad way. All right, Rafe, why did you choose this movie? You've already said it was a nostalgia pick, but is that all? Well, I mean, it, it was on the list of kids on bikes movies that you and I looked at when we very first threw together the idea of this podcast. Um, And it immediately drew my attention because it is one of those iconic movies for me. Like there there was a thing going around the internet a couple of years ago that was uh, to list five movies that define you. They don't necessarily have to be the good movies, but if you made a list of five movies that if somebody watched, they would understand you better. And this is one of those movies for me. 
Um, yeah. And so when I saw it on the kids on bikes list, I immediately gravitated towards it. It made my short list of, okay, I'm going to get six picks. You know, what, what is going to be on my list? And this was one of them. And I think part of it was, as you kind of said, the opportunity, the excuse, if you will, to revisit it. And, you know, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, I, I revisited it and then I immediately messaged Drew going, eee, uh, <laughs> great movie, not much to work with as far as like gamification. Now, Drew, as is typical, uh, completely blew my expectations away as we get into that portion of the show. But uh, when I was watching it, I was like, yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of, of depth to this as far as gamification. I still think it's a great movie, uh, great performances. Uh, and for me personally... If you watch this movie, Will Wheaton as Gordy Lachance, that's what I looked like at that age. To the point that my mother has said that she has trouble watching this movie because it reminds her of me and my best friend at the time, Will. We would get together and like he'd come over or I'd go over to his house and we would disappear for the rest of the day into the woods. Right. You know, we weren't necessarily going on a quest to see a body, but we, this is the kind of stuff we were doing. And we were out in the woods playing around and, you know, climbing trees and, uh, you know, digging up rocks and creeks and, and that kind of stuff. And that just, this movie captures an element of my childhood in a way that a lot of other movies don't. So I think that's part of why I have this personal connection to this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so when was the first time you watched it? Probably when I was 15 or 16. It was not a in the theater movie for me. It was a VHS. I do remember the first time I watched it was with my friend Will, who, as I mentioned, was the one that I was, you know, he was, he was my Chris Chambers, uh, right. you know, and, and that, that, uh, I think made watching it even more special in some ways because that, that we had that bond already and we kind of got it. Cool. Yeah. How about you? When did you first see it? Oh, uh, 87. Uh, 86, 87, when it, as soon as it came on HBO, I didn't have HBO at my house at the time, but, um, uh, my friend, Matt, the, all the branches, this was on constantly. Um, and I think for the most part, uh, minus some language, uh, this is a perfectly feasible 1980s film for younger people to watch. So I was, I was roughly 10 years old when I, I saw this film, I know watching this, I had some of the lines in this movie were a part of my regular vocabulary at that age, which is a shame because it was probably <laughs> some of the, the more questionable lines um, and behaviors, certainly. And But uh, again, having not seen it in such a long time, a lot of what really this movie is actually about went over my head as a kid. And right. it didn't this time around. And I, I have no pages and pages and pages of notes. I, I've read some think pieces about it. Um, I, I have definitely done a deep dive into this film. Uh, so much so that I'm probably going to forget really basic, obvious things because right. there's like minutiae <laughs> that I kind of want to talk about that's really not overly important, but that's just how my my brain works. Um, you said that this is a classic. This is one that you love. You are not alone in thinking that looking at Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it's got like a 92% for the tomato meter audience score of 94% with over 250,000 reviews. Because it's a so, good movie. <laughs> it's a good movie. I, I refer to Rob Reiner as a vastly underappreciated uh, director. I think he is, and actor. I think he's a he's a hilarious actor as well. Sure. But you just kind of look at his the body of his work, you know, minus some of the newer stuff. But just phenomenal hits. Oh yeah, phenomenal stuff. Oh, and so. between this and the Princess Bride, and it, like he could have been done right there and been forever right? remembered. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's like, hey, listen, uh, in less than 10 years, you're going to do a spinal tap. The Princess Bride. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
right? So yeah, look, Spinal Tap, Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, followed that with Misery, A Few Good Men, and then sadly he ended that streak with North. Hey, I like North. Good. There's <laughs> a, one person needs to. I haven't seen it since. I still have my ticket for North, but yeah, I have American not seen it since it was on HBO. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that the rest of his filmography is bad. Certainly isn't. There's some great he's stuff in there. He's gotten more political in the last few years, and he admits it. Like, he fully admits yeah. that he's gotten more political. And if you don't agree with his politics, then you're probably not going to like his films. I tend to align with some of his politics, and I still don't like some of his films. So, yeah. you know, they're a little preachy. <laughs> but that run, I mean, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven, I dare I say, some of them are definitely classics. Some of them are near classics. Very few directors get that kind of a run, especially early in their career. And only so, one yeah. on that list that I have not seen. Ooh, which one's that? I I, I still have not seen A Few Good Men. Oh, yeah. well, um, there's a fantastic mashup online of <laughs> someone doing the courtroom scene of A Few Good Men. Uh, you Can't Handle the Truth, sung to um, You've Got a Friend in Me. And so- uh, I think it's called There I Ruined It. It's a, a musician who uh, ruins things. Anyway, it's I'm worth listening that. to. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's that is beyond the point. So let's talk about we, we talked about how good this movie is. Yes. Let's talk about why this movie is so good. Rafe, can you give me we can do a good, bad, and ugly, right? So good, right. good things, bad, bad things, ugly things. Usually things that maybe not in the movie per se or or, or centered around the movie. Um, kind of a meta commentary on the the film itself. But I always we're a positive show. Let's talk about the good things. What is good in this film? One of the things that struck me this time is, you know, this came out in 86. So this is a movie of the 80s. Uh, it's set in the 1950s. But it, it's very surprisingly depiction of emotional guys. The fact that mm-hmm. Gordy and Chris hug each other, you know, just when they meet, you know, at the beginning of the movie, when they when they encounter each other, they give each other a hug. Uh, you know, they they let down their guard and they cry at different times in the movie. Uh, I mean, heck, almost all of them do that. And given that, I I don't know about you, but growing up in the the seventies, eighties, nineties era, uh, you know, it was, there still was very much that delineation of man up. You know, be a man, don't have to show a ton of emotion type thing. And so the fact that we depicted a movie that was made in that time period and set in the 50s when that was at its height, you know, as far as like, you guys just don't show emotion, I think is a really good thing. Like maybe that's part, maybe this movie and movies like it are part of why I grew up to be someone who's a little more in touch with my emotions and a little more willing to share emotions and such. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, having them as role models, especially male sure friends is certainly was definitely positive now i'm an emotional desert um i'm dead inside uh the only <laughs> things that can get me to cry are, are movies and commercials but it is nice to have those these sort of uh role models like i said uh rafe i'm going to buck tradition with this i'm just going to go ahead and say the soundtrack is great <laughs> <laughs> the soundtrack I, is absolutely killer yes the soundtrack is really good you know again most of this music i think is period appropriate um i, I i'm sure i'm sure, without doing the research i'm sure at some point in time one of the songs came out three months after uh the the movie takes place and someone really had a conniption about it but that's fine soundtrack's great soundtrack's really good um and actually one of the things i really like about the kind of um, interior soundtrack of it is that we have these boys walking the train tracks and singing uh, stuff like songs together, but also 
television jingles for years. I was trying to figure out why I knew the intro to have gun will travel when I know (laughs) for a fact that I have never seen the show. Now, do I own a complete box set? Of course I do. Have I watched ever an episode? I have not, but I know have gun will travel. Anyway, watching this, I was like, yes, yes, that is what happened. So that was really cool. I really like that. And I also feel, and just to go along with with this, uh, about just kind of how they relate to each other, the interactions with our protagonists feels natural. And it that feels was be like my next a thing. Yeah. real group of boys. I mean, like, we'll talk about how good the acting is, but part of this is the script. And the script for this is excellent because the dialogue feels authentic and the, um, you know, I almost would say that the, the whole emotionality between them doesn't feel authentic because we have been led to believe that people were dead inside uh, at this time period and no one no one showed emotion but that's not true it's just how men were presented in media so yeah i I think i thought like those two things certainly need to be but we have many more things to talk about yeah no and and part of that dynamic between that was going to be the next thing that i mentioned uh is part of that dynamic between them is Credit to Rob Reiner as a director who got the four boys together uh, ahead of time and let them kind of bond and let them kind of interact with each other and let them be kids on the set. Like he didn't mm-hmm. try to treat them. And, and obviously there's merit to, you know, ta- treating a child actor as as a, as a professional. And we, we saw that when we uh, looked at the last two movies that we looked at and when we Absolutely. talked with the director of those films, you know, there's, there's merit to that. But I think there's also merit when you're telling a story of this type, letting the kids be kids and letting them play around with each other. And that's that's the mentality that Rob Reiner decided to bring as director to the film. And I think that's a that's a big part of why that dynamic works is because he treated it that way. Yeah. I also really love our main antagonists, you know, the the punks, the the mm-hmm. the, the racers, whatever you want to call them. The the woodchucks, I guess, is what their their formal name is. Which, is that the name of the team? I thought he was carving cobra into his arm. Right, they were carving cobra, but at the end when Gordy has the gun on him, Kiefer Sutherland's character says you 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 know the, you don't mess with a woodchuck. Oh wow! Okay, miss that somehow. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's a colloquialism. We don't know. But uh, the dynamic between them really works as well, and I know mm-hmm. that part of that also is Kiefer Sutherland kept his distance from our our protagonists on to kind of keep that animosity between them on the set. Some of that may just have been Kiefer Sutherland being a jerk, but you know, it it and it just being works. A, a creepy guy, you know, right? Kiefer- and, and as we talked about with Lost Boys, and I, you know, yeah. again. Can't praise Kiefer Sutherland enough. You know, we've done Lost Boys. We've done this. He works. You know, it. Right. what he did in this era worked and brought a, a specific on-screen persona for him that maybe wasn't the best thing for him over the course of his career because he finally had to break away from that. Uh, right. But uh, I love just even the interaction. Like my one of my favorite lines of dialogues in the movie is when they're talking about not wanting to go. You know, he's telling everybody we're going to go find this body. We've got the fishing pole. So if anybody asks us what we're doing, we were just going fishing. And they're like, we don't want to go. You know, we'll get caught, that kind of stuff. And he says, you know, okay, I've heard your, your side. Now here's mine. Get in the damn car. <laughs> right. And I just, just the clear cut nature of it. And, you know, it's just, it feels just as authentic between them as it does between the protagonists. And I love that. There was uh, a moment while I was writing my notes where I started to pitch in my brain an idea that we look at this from their perspective. I have thought of that before. Yes. Um, But I just didn't want to. 
Yeah. Um, I don't feel like it, it's, it's, you, there's still a movie there. There's still a story there. Um, and I think if you want to play a gang of teenage boys, and I think they are still teenagers, you know, I think they still count towards the kids because I think they are roughly they're high, high school, school age. age. Still, yeah. yeah. They're, they're still so, high school age, probably the end of high school. And at yeah. least one of them is probably repeating the end of high school. <laughs> probably more than one. But what I love about it is that several of them are the brothers of other yes. characters. And that dynamic, which it doesn't really stress, but it, it's it's in there. And so when we talk about family, and we are going to talk a lot about family, that gives such an extra weight and dimension to that issue. Um, because and, and that means I've got to throw one more in since you kind of brought that up. And one of the yes. other things that I absolutely love about this movie, given that he has less than five minutes of screen time, is John Cusack's role, mm-hmm. you know, playing Gordy's older brother, who is now dead, uh, you know, and like he was not part of that gang. And yet there's a scene, there's an interaction with Kiefer Sutherland's character where you, they knew who he was mm-hmm. and maybe even respected who he was, yeah. even though he wasn't one of them by any means. Or even feared them because it feels like yeah. um, Denny was not going to take anything. And as a football player, he probably could handle himself. I'm glad that you mentioned that because, you know, you said that your resemblance to Will Wheaton is uncanny and it is. I knew you at that time. I agree. And the two actors <laughs> that I always think of when I think of you are Will Wheaton and John Cusack. And um, John Cusack for years has been my surrogate in films. Like when I watched yeah. movies, a lot of the time the role that he was playing was like, oh my God, that's me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I completely agree. So watching this was like, oh, look at you both in there and your siblings, which makes <laughs> a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. Pretty cool. Um, yeah. Uh, acting is great. Uh, the directing is great. The story, you know, great. again, you're working with Stephen King. Um, not every Stephen King adaptation works. No. Is this the best Stephen King adaptation? I think we could probably make a really strong argument that it is not necessarily best movie per se, but possibly best adaptation. You know, I am not a huge Stephen King reader there. I read everything that he wrote. Like every kid in middle school in the 80s, I read everything that Stephen King wrote <laughs> up until a certain point. Listen, if you're listening to this and you're surprised by that statement, there's two things. Maybe you're surprised by it. Maybe you don't even know who Stephen King is, and that's perfectly fine. But it's hard to stress how ubiquitous Stephen King was in the 1980s. Sure. He, he was everything. Everything. Like a Stephen King movie came out, you went and saw it. Stephen King book came out, you went and read it. Everyone was reading it. Uh, it was different times. I think like the last Stephen King book I read, period, was oh, what's the one with the weird twins, the psychopomps? Good half, evil half. Anyway, the dark uh, half. Dark half, probably. Yeah. yeah, dark half. I think it was the last one I read, but yeah, Stephen King, the source material. Yeah. You can do Stephen King wrong, didn't in this case, and I think Stephen King liked this one, so that's important. You know, it is nice when. The person who created the original story went, yeah, it's a good one, or even cries at it. So, and it's a very personal story for King too. That is a lot of backstory with that. Probably don't have to go into it. Um, so, I just wanted to check. We have talked about the soundtrack. Yes, we're good. We're Acting, good. check. Direction, good. Story, good. Dialogue, interpersonality, uh, characters. Anything else we want to talk about that's that's good? Uh, no, I think that, that that pretty well covers it. Rafe, can you think of anything that's bad with this movie? I have one thing that I think is bad, and it's it's not the movie's fault. 
Mm-hmm. But for years, I have heard Vern referred to as the fat kid. Now, this is not in the movie. They do not really pick on his weight in the movie. He but picks they, on himself. He picks on himself. He's not fat. No. He's, he's not, not even close. Like, <laughs> Chunk in Goonies is bigger than this kid. <laughs> yeah. But well, I, I see a lot of people, they see how Jerry O'Connell has, has grown up, and they're like, oh, the fat kid got hot. And it's like, he wasn't the fat kid in the first place. He just was the no. awkward kid. <laughs> yeah, and, and agreed. He refers to himself as the fat kid. He is not as skinny as the rest of them. However, especially just up until even 10 years ago, body shaming was just a thing. Right. I would almost say that that goes into the ugly. Yeah. Um. What we didn't talk about is actually the framing mechanism for this this film, and that hasn't been mentioned. So if you're not familiar with this, we also didn't give a spoiler warning, so spoilers now. Um, this film is being told by Gordy later in his life. This is a, a memory, a reminiscence of his. And so the narrative is built with him as the main narrator. Uh, so this is a point of – it is from Gordy's – Will Wheaton's character's point of view. And it is narrated by Richard Dreyfus. I found – Dreyfus's voice to be distracting? I don't really? know. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> the great Richard Dreyfus. I mean, the man has been on the Great British Bake Off. I know. Who am I to, to judge? Uh, I didn't know I, that. <laughs> it's on one of the celebrity episodes. It's, it's cute. Uh, they they definitely fall over themselves, and it's a little annoying. Anyway, it doesn't matter. All I got as far as negatives of this film is that it wasn't great. Wasn't hundreds mm. of the best. I love. It. I like the framing method. I think mm. it's interesting. I don't know if Dreyfus was the best choice. Part of it is I keep on looking at him and going, "That's not what Will Reed grows up to look like." <laughs> um, and that's and again that maybe that's what it is. Okay, ugly, ugly. Yeah, I got one thing. Yeah, and you and I had the same thing. The um, the the period language, uh, which. You know, I, I have a hard time bringing it up as ugly because if it's authentic to the time period, then that what they've done is they've authentically created the time period that they're depicting, Agreed. and that's supposed to be a good thing. But yeah, the the amount of time that the the f word was thrown around, or the fact that they you know they act like acting like a bunch of girls is an insult, and you know yeah. that kind of stuff was like, eh, I could have could have done without that. Uh, agreed. I, and I think you make a valid point. As we discussed, there there are times where if you, if it's written to be into the part. That's great. If you feel like it's natural, it's natural and not forced, which I agree it is. We talk about the, you know, the the boys being young and feeling emotion and crying and being sensitive with one another, but they're also messing with each other from start to finish, and we get to see masculinity. I, I think the girls from now and then would take issue with the, the being a girl being an insult. <laughs> hey, listen, we're going to compare the two of them in just a moment. I absolutely agree. And part of it is with when you have the framing reference, it's interesting that you have someone like Gordy, who is clearly a great writer and someone who, who is very sensitive about these sort of things. He, the story that we get within the story, his framing narrative, is a body shaming it story, is. Uh, which is interesting. The, the fat kid at 180 pounds. Well, <laughs> yeah. Agreed. 
listen, growing up it, when we did, uh, I know. part of it is for me is just the shame that I, I, I took part in this same kind of behavior. Well, and the, but, the point that I made to my girlfriend is, you know, if you look at Will Wheaton in this movie, and again, I looked exactly like him, scrawny as hell, you know, that's yeah. like just absolutely thin. So to someone who is that thin and scrawny, yeah, 180 pounds is considered to be, you know, big. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to take a moment to talk about some themes in this film. Sure. Um, particularly, this is a film about stories, right? So they go on a quest. And they go on a quest specifically not for because the family's worried about Ray Bauer's, you know, body. They want to become famous, right? Right. And well, this is a recollection. Yeah. That that's why they start. But Gordy even knows from the beginning there is some deeper purpose driving him to see this. To, to find this Gordy body. It is says not that, fame. but remember, Gordy's the narrator, and we have I, his the wisdom of many years. Right. There is a narrative storytelling that every single one of these characters and how they relate to stories. And so one of the things I found fascinating about this movie is just how, again, how that relates. Gordy is the storyteller. So um, whether or not Gordy is a reliable narrator. He's not. I, I mean, I, is, is uh, you know, he's, t- he's telling a tale. So we can't necessarily guarantee what is being said. So he is in control of this. He is in many ways the game master. Right. Right. In in this scenario. And, and if you look at it, he's not a reliable narrator. The story is being told because he has learned about the death of Chris Chambers as an adult. Mm-hmm. And and I think that affects the the way he depicts Chris Chambers in the story. Now that's they could have been the best friends. I could tell you, I told you, you know, I, I grow up grew up doing this kind of stuff with my friend Will. Will was a jerk at times. But <laughs> if I was telling this story because something had happened to Will and I'm like reflecting upon the past, I'm going to leave that part out, you know? Right. So absolutely. He's, and then the two other two, you know, he, he has lost touch with, he doesn't know as much about. And so they don't get as uh, glamorous a, a place in the party as, as they're going through. Sure. Absolutely. He's an unreliable narrator. I, yeah. I have no doubt about that. Why going back to, to Chris, you're absolutely right. Chris is dealing with narrative versus the truth versus expectations a lot of his what his character motivates his character is whether or not he has to live up to his family's reputation right Vern, as far as stories doesn't get it uh he doesn't understand when he should be telling a story he doesn't understand what he shouldn't be telling a story he misses that he's the butt of jokes there, there's like the narrative kind of is over his head and teddy sweet sweet teddy uh <laughs> Doesn't matter what the story is. There's a narrative that he is going to stick with it and believe, regardless of what the evidence is. And and I think what's all four of them are going at stories differently. And Vern's really weird because I kept on like every time I came up with a, what I thought was a really good pattern, Vern just a sort of like funny sidekick. Um, right. It's a real shame. Like again, I think you you hit the nail on the head. It is Gordy telling the story. The focus is about Gordy's experience and how great Chris was, and then his other two kind of secondary, almost like NPCs more than anything else. Uh, there's some behavior that alludes to it that that does feel like gamers playing characters, and we'll 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 get to that. Um, <laughs> I should mention at this point in time because. We, we've talked about Henry Thomas enough in the last month or so. Henry Thomas was originally offered the role that went to Will Wheaton. Thomas rejected it because of his age in relation to the other characters. Um, he felt he was too young and he just didn't want to deal it. And he says it's one of his biggest regrets. So that that came up in an interview I saw with Brian Trenchard Smith and uh, Henry Thomas. I, I'm glad he didn't because I don't think it would be the same film with him playing that role. 
you know, and I and that's don't get me. I, I like I like Henry Thomas a lot. I mean, we've talked about him, you know, and we talked about just in our last intermission how much I've enjoyed some of his other stuff that we haven't talked yeah. about, like Cloak and Dagger. But uh, I don't think he would have been right for this. Agreed. I there's I don't know if it's either that he would be too earnest or not earnest enough. Um, right. It's yeah. Rafe, it has to happen uh, and might as yeah. well happen now. We need to compare this to now and then. And first off, and I think you will absolutely agree with me, is that we did the right thing by doing now and then first. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, because now and then is uh, an underappreciated film. And, and mm-hmm. I think if we – we even said during the last intermission when we were going back through our ratings, you, we even said we would probably change our ratings for now and then. Uh, so even in the, the moment of having – discussing it, we didn't appreciate it as much as we've kind of already started to, to grow to. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas this is a movie that is in the cultural zeitgeist for a lot of people. So yeah, absolutely. Yes. We needed to cover the uh, the, un, the lesser known film first. Yeah, agreed. And I, I know people of a certain age who would, who would really take offense to the fact of being a lesser known film. I, I think it is it is lesser known unless you were of a certain age at the time it came out. It came out in 95, right? And so now and then um, people, if you were at a certain age in 95, this that's popular, but I, it's kind of disappeared. It, right. it is kind of disappeared. And I guess we have talked about how much of a, of a film now and then is, is a Kids on Bikes movie. I guess maybe do we should we do the comparisons first and discuss whether or not this is a Kids on Bikes film? Well, I feel like I maybe should have mentioned that right off the get-go. And we just kind of got into it. <laughs> you have kind of apologized in a sense um, f- for certain aspects of it. And I, and I feel like I can defend it in both ways. Do we want to do this now? We want to save it for an RPG. Well, the the only thing that I apologized for, really, you know, I think this is a phenomenal movie. It's still still on my top movies list. I love this film. Mm. I, I think it's a beautiful film. Uh, as we've already talked about, well directed, well written, well acted, everything. But from a gamification standpoint, the narrative doesn't have as much going for it. There aren't that many encounters. There aren't that many obstacles. There aren't that many conflicts. This movie is more about individual growth and conquering one's own personal demons in a lot of ways. And that's harder to gamify. Not impossible. And and Drew is going to show why he is the better half of this podcast in a little while, because he has some good ideas. But from a gamification standpoint, not the best pick. Not a great kids on bikes film when you get down to it. As much as I think of it as being a kids on bikes film, uh, it's n- not an adventure story. I would argue and that. We will we will also just go ahead and hit the nitpick that Rafe brings up every time it happens. There's no bikes. There are a couple of kids on bikes that drive past Richard Dreyfus when he's in his car at the beginning of the movie, and that's it. There's no bikes. I will stress that the bikes are, are the least important part of the kids on bikes. I know. But, I know. But, but I've brought it up. Is, I've nitpicked several yeah, ones that you've picked sure. before. I, I've got to be fair and hit my own movie for it. Let's let's hit the three things that we normally talk about with kids on bikes. Are there kids? And yes. are they a group of kids? Yes. Yeah. Great. Do they have agency? Yes. Absolutely. 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 Shoot, the parents are all but invisible in this movie, with the exception of Gordy's, and that's because those are his personal demons. Yes. Well, we see everyone's parents' personal demons uh, uh, affected on the, on the kids themselves. Um, we just don't actually always see the parents. The main thing that I would say that keeps it from being like having rewatched, I may not have included on a kids on bikes list um, in the yeah. same way, is the fact that there is no 
they are going to a destination and that's important um, versus the town. There's a lot of discussion of the town, but I feel like the sense of place is lost because it's the sense of journey and that place is kind of within them. And it's, they need to grow as individuals and leave the town. Right. And and there's a part of that that I like. There's there, there's definitely an aspect to it that I like it's about the journey, but it mm-hmm. doesn't lay into our criteria as well. Right. Yeah. So I'm 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 mentioning this now because it may come up later. Um right. but let's go back to now and then. Now and then is a better kids on bikes movie. <laughs> Agreed. Well that'll show up in the ratings. But who has the worst parents? Now and then or stand by me. I'm still going to go with Stand By Me having the worst parents. You've got one kid who has literally been disfigured by his father. You've got Gordy's parents. Now, again, with the unreliable narrator, I don't believe that Gordy's dad actually ever said to him, it should have been you instead of Denny. I think that is part of the unreliable narrator, and I think that's why it appears in a dream sequence instead of in a, a reality sequence, like flashback. But... Uh, I, I think the parents in in Stand By Me are are worse. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> the writer's bookend. Um, the fact that we are being told this story um, with the adults. Who did it better? Uh, Stand By Me or Now and Then? Stand By Me has one of my all-time favorite lines of dialogue, which is never actually said. It's just written on the computer screen in that bookend about, I never had friends Correct. like I did when I was 12. Jesus did any of us or did anyone. But I yeah. think now and then I had the better writer bookends. <laughs> I disagree because um honestly, even though I don't love Dreyfus in the part, every almost every negative thing I have to say about now and then was the adults, especially in the the final half. So interesting enough. Sense of time period. <sighs> Tie. I think they both do it incredibly well. Agreed. <laughs> and and soundtrack uh i th- i like stand by me's better because i like that music better <laughs> so i like it but one of the things that i was thinking about with now and then is we actually like I, I mentioned earlier that the kids do sing songs in stand by me but i feel like the soundtrack is a little bit more lived in in now and then fair uh like they are they are actively participating with the music rather than it just being playing playing sure. over the, the static shots and stuff. And as I said, I think it's better. I, I the only reason I give it to stand by me is because I personally like that that music better. That's that's me. Yeah. So yeah, no, no, I agree. I, yeah. I, I get it. They're both Listen, wonderful people are films. gonna want to hear us compare the two of them. Now yeah, we've I, done it. <laughs> and I, I think the I think those are the ones we've done it. It doesn't have to take a lot of time. It's Rave, it's your favorite part. We're gonna talk about which kid are you? Yeah, well, there's no question on this one. I I was <laughs> Gordy Lachance. I, I I mean, I yeah. was uh, a writer. Uh, I, I probably wasn't as much into writing then as I was in my later teen years and my early twenties. But I was definitely not the leader of my group, so I was not Chris Chambers. I, I was not the weirdo. I can tell you exactly who was the weirdo of my group, and it was not me. It's one of those that if you can't tell who the weirdo of the group was, it probably was you. I know who it was. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but no, I was and I and I was the I mean not not trying to insult my friends or anything. I was the one who was a little more sensitive, like Gordy is, and uh, mm-hmm. there might have been some you know haunted by parental relationship things going on there. Sure. I mean, I don't want to admit that I was Teddy because I feel like Teddy is too intense for the, the level of energy that I had. Um, right. It's kind of close between Teddy and Vern, though, as as far as those four characters. I was also a sensitive kid that liked writing, but like 
my energy level was probably more Vern, like on the Vern scale to the Teddy scale. Having known you around that time of our of our lives, uh, a couple years later, I guess. But yeah, you you were more of a Vern than a Teddy, I think. I'll take that as a compliment, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, well, I mean it as a compliment. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I know. Um, you know, Corey did a fantastic job with that character. Yes. Uh, I really... I really think that's actually probably one of his better acting roles. Um, I agree. I think it's probably uh, his best so. from that era. Yeah. As much as I love him as Edgar Frog. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Listen, we clearly both like this movie quite a bit. So how do we rate Stand By Me on our movie scale? Well, so we, we rate our movies for those who are joining us for the first time uh, on two scales. The first is how good of a movie is it? One to 10, 10 being the best. So what do you think? R- rather than run down the list of every movie we've done with this one, what do you think for, for as good a movie? For as good as, this is a 10 for me. As I yeah. said, it is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, you know, I mean, I I didn't rank The Goonies as high as that, and and I love The Goonies, but this is just mm-hmm. a, 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 I don't put The Goonies on that list, as I said, of movies that define me the way that I do with Stand By Me. So th- sure. this is a 10 out of 10. And I, and I rewatching it, and it's funny because I, I, my girlfriend did not have as positive a reaction, again, her first time watching it, and she didn't, I think she was still having to process what she had watched and stuff, but I, I was like just still love this movie having revisited yeah. it. like the, the the language yeah but it's also authentic the time period so Agreed. yeah i yeah. can deal with it you know yeah sure what about you well this is tricky because you know how good a movie is versus how much i like a movie very different things um i'm gonna give this a nine okay. i'm going to rank this above attack the block which i, I gave say, 8.5 still the highest you've given a movie so yeah i i think it is a superlative film not my favorite, but as far as a movie, just the fact that like good script, good direction, good acting, uh, I I can't give it a 10, but I, I can give it a nine. Uh, the next is a little trickier, right? Because yeah. now we talk about how good this is with the criteria that we just recently discussed, which is how good of a kids on bikes movie is this? And now I'm, now I think talking about giving examples, right? We both gave Goonies a 10. Yeah, we both like. I gave Attack the Block an eight and a half. Super Eight, I gave an eight. Now and then, a seven point five, which I'm pretty sure I will bring bring up. BMX Bandits, Lost Boys, The Kid Who Would Be King, All Sevens, Frog Dreaming, a five. For the reason, if you want to know why that's so much lower, listen to the podcast. Right, right. So, um, and you, I I gave Goonies also a ten, as you said. Uh, now and then, I gave a nine because I think it's a great kids on bikes movie. Uh, Kid Who Would Be King an eight. Lost Boys and BMX Bandits both sevens. Attack the Block a six. Uh, Super Eight a five, and Frog Dreaming a four. We both have Frog Dreaming yeah. as our low watermark, though, I will say. Well, and, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are three characters that are kids, but it's right. really a one-person story. Right. Um, and that, I think, is the only thing that keeps – I think Frog Dreaming, if all three of those kids were active participants in the film, it will go up. But you're, you're right. You're right. Cody Walpole, too awesome for that movie. I think Frog Dreaming is more of a kids on bikes movie than Stand By Me. Okay. Because there are bikes. <laughs> There is a quest and a place. Right. And while one kid is better than the other, uh, is more prominent in the stories, we we have a good good group of kids. I'm going to give Stand By Me a five. I'm going to tie it with Frog Dreaming because I think where it falls down is the sense of place, but it excels in really good characters and it excels in the freedom that is experienced by kids. So I think they both fall down in in one of the two locations. Um, and I, I, 
it's hard to give a movie that good a rating lower than that. Yeah. But I think I think pairing it as a five with Frog Dreaming is is the, the lowest I could possibly give it. Uh, I'm going to go slightly higher than I did for Frog Dreaming. I did put that at a four. Uh, I gave Super 8 a five because it kind of ran into that same problem, which is most of the ensemble falls aside once you really start to focus on Charlie's story. Mm-hmm. Um, and this does have a stronger ensemble than that. But again, no bikes and some of the conflicts are are kind of not really kids on bikes, something you can replicate in a game session. So I'm going to. I'm going to also give it a five. Uh, that does put it above Frog Dreaming, um, but I, I think it's a, a challenging prospect in kind of some of the same ways the Super 8 was. Gotcha. I think that hurt you a lot. And um... <laughs> No, I can, I, again, I, I think it's a relish- 10 out of 10 movie. I mean, it's a brilliant movie. Yeah. No, it's a good film. It's a good film. All right. It is time for our favorite and apparently our listeners' favorite part of the show, our Kids on Bikes draft. Each of us gets to compose a team of seven mundane kids and one peripheral adult. Uh, Our teams thus far, which outnumber that because we will be pairing them down at the end of the season. For me, I have Mikey from Goonies, Pest from Attack the Block, Edgar Frog from The Lost Boys, adult Roberta, Dr. Roberta, as we've been calling her from now and then, Charles from Super 8, Betters from The Kid Who Would Be King, Goose from BMX Bandits, and Jane from The Quest. Uh, I have Data from The Goonies. I have Moses from Attack the Block. I've got Grandpa Emerson as my uh, adult from The Lost Boys. I've got Sam from Now and Then. I've got Alice from Super 8. I've got Kay from The Kid Who Would Be King. I've got Judy from BMX Bandits and Cody Walpole from The Quest. And this movie takes us back to kind of the early days of the podcast, or at least not the last two movies that we've discussed, whereas there there is a wealth of characters from which to pick from. But because it was my movie, because I picked this movie, our rules dictate that Drew gets to go first in the draft pick. So he gets to pick the character he wants before I get to, because I'm the one who picked the movie. So Drew, who are you adding to your team? Well, um... Uh, we have an interesting list, right? Because there's technically about 10 teenagers that we we could get because there is a whole gang. Right. Uh, so you've got Gordy, Chris, Teddy, and Vern from our, our group. Uh, you've got Ace, Eyeball, and all those others from their group. And I'm throwing Ray Brower in there um, just because, you know, I mean, really, <laughs> Ray's the reason they're all together. And I'm sure at some point in time. He uh, offers um, the group anyway. motivation, but not much else. <laughs> in a, in many ways, he's their leader. Uh, no, I'm going with Chris Chambers. I mean, there is no, there is no uh, way I won't. And here's why Rafe looks really angry. I know this is probably near and dear to his heart. Uh, here is why. And look, I can see Graham fist bumping with this one too. You're going to love this one, Graham. <laughs> I have a team of misfits. You do. Um, most of my folks... And we have talked on many occasions how we feel that what I have rather than a team, depending on who I go with, what I have is several smaller teams. Right. And if this team needs something, it's not a leader, but it's someone who can bring both sides together. And so far, there has been no character in any story we've seen who I think could be a peacemaker as good as Chris Chambers. And this was not the pick I was expecting. And as I was watching the movie, I'm like, oh... I love this. And I was counting on the fact that you don't have a leader, that you wouldn't pick Chris because you're kind of going on that dynamic. And I was like, yeah, there's no way he'll pick Chris. There's no way. I've got it in the bag. It's easy. This is easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to pick pick Teddy to to at least pay tribute to his original idea of a team of (laughs) Corys. 
So here's the thing. If I were writing this story or if I were making this a, a movie, I would absolutely pick Teddy because the dynamic is so interesting and the energy is different from everybody else. But from a role-playing game standpoint, I really like the idea that there's a character who, uh, and I'm looking very much forward to statting this character, um, that will I think will play in with the kind of chaotic nature because Chris will act like a third leader because there will be probably three leader-like characters who are not leaders, who are basically, um, again, leadership is thrust upon them. Right, because right. because clearly Gordy is the emotional leader of this group. Uh, Chris is. They say he's the leader. He's not the leader of this group. They are motivated in, almost entirely by Gordy in this in this story. Uh, he is the emotional center. He's the one who is kind of the compass. Chris is there to met out comfort and trust, uh, and he needs it too, which is really fascinating. I think he is a really good, well rounded character, and I'm not going to rub it in anymore. Uh, No, so now I'm going to ask you, I'm going to do something we have not done before. I'm going to ask you, because you know that I wanted Chris, obviously, based on my reaction. I do now. Who am I going to pick, since I don't have Chris? Who do you think I'm going to pick? I think you're going to pick Ace. Uh, I think uh, you need a bad boy for your group. And... <laughs> um, well, I mean, as far as my favorite character, obviously Gordy is my favorite character, right? Uh, because uh, you know he's the one that I connected with. He was the kid I definitely was. As you said, he's the emotional core of the group. I already have an emotional core of the group. I yeah. don't need Gordy. And as much as it breaks my heart, I'm not picking Gordy. I'm I- I'm I'm picking Vern. I'm surprised by this. I thought you were going to go with Teddy. I no, thought you were going to go with Teddy. I don't think Teddy fits in my dynamic at all. Mm. I, and it, and it's again, I, I talk about how when we first set this idea out, I never thought that I would think about the dy- the group dynamic, but I, I do, and I don't think Teddy fits my dynamic at all. I'm not sure Vern necessarily fits it all that well either. But he did remember you got a lot to bring of funny sidekicks. You know, he brings a come. Well, I have like if you look at my static characters, I have a lot of funny sidekicks. But he did remember to bring the comb, and you know that's something I listed. So I wrote, I have on my notes. I'm like, no one's going to pick Vern, but if someone does. It's he is going to be far and away the easiest person to backpack because you're going to need the comb. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're gonna need a jar of pennies. And you're gonna need cherry pez. And that's the one the one question, you know, pulling a Vern here. Like, there's one thing I didn't understand. Did he have to pay to enter the Pioneer contest? No. There's one thing I don't understand. Did Vern ever find the jar of pennies? Because I think right. he didn't. I think he never found it. I think his brother snuck under there and dug it up and stole it and never told him. And he spent the, the next year digging for that jar of pennies before finally hanging it up. I mean, I think that that is perfect. And had you chosen Gordy, I would have said that, of course, you know, Denny's lucky hat would have gone into the backpack and sure. I would have as game master taken that from you within the first 30 minutes of our, our role-playing session. Oh, you're evil. Yeah. The thing that I love is, and I did do a real research on this, like what did Ace do with the hat when, when they steal it? And they're like, he threw it away because sure. he doesn't care. It's no. not about, it's not about the value to him. It's just simply about being a jerk. As soon as he took it, he gave it to eyeball. I yeah. mean, he didn't even leave the scene with it. Yeah, and Eyeball true. doesn't have it later, so yeah, I guarantee you, yeah. they, just, they just threw it away. It was meaningless to them. All right, that concludes the movie portion of our conversation. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about gamifying Stand By Me. Hello. 
Hello everyone and welcome to Monster Hour, an actual play podcast about going to school, arguing with your parents, and ruining your favorite outfit while hunting horrible monsters. Narrative-driven and crisply edited with painfully relatable characters. Monster Hour follows unlikely heroes JR. Super suspicious. That's sort of my deal. Constance. I may be a bit of a know-it-all, but I might actually know it all. And Alvin. I'm monstrous. As they unravel the sinister mysteries of a strange Colorado town. If you're a fan of Stranger Things, Buffy, or the Adventure Zone Amnesty, you'll love Monster Hour. Tune in for new episodes every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. We are back, and we are going to talk about gamifying. And Drew, this is the part that makes me nervous as far as this movie pick. And, and and before you get into doing your magic, doing that voodoo that you do so well, let, let me explain. Watching the movie, um, I, I know we don't do a beat-for-beat beat recreation of the film when we're talking about this. We're talking about capturing the spirit of the film. And the problem I encountered is you don't have a whole lot of conflict. You don't have a lot of, of, of obstacles along the way. Most of the obstacles that you have come from within which I've already said, you know. So really what you're trying to do is capture this idea that that Gordy says at one point of this being the best of times, you know, that this is this is the point that they are the best of times in their youth and how do you capture that in spirit in a gaming uh scenario where most of the obstacles and most of the conflict is going to come from the players themselves as opposed to what the devious GM might set up. Well, here's the important thing that Sometimes I feel like we forget to really focus on this. If you are going to be playing a game inspired by a movie, chances are your players are going to know that you were playing a game inspired by the movie, which means that they have to be willing to play a game inspired by a movie. Now, sometimes very easy. Attack the block. Let's do that. Now and then and stand by me, a little trickier, right? Because... Uh, it is not a traditional adventure story. There are adventures. They are certainly going on adventures, but um, it's almost more of an inward journey than it is an outward journey. Right. Uh, so the first thing that we have to talk about is what we're talking about in this zero session. The session zero, what are we talking about before we get started with the actual game? There's a couple of these. And the first and most important one is if you're going to play inspired by the emotional roller coaster that is Stand By Me, you have to be comfortable with role playing. And I think that is, this is not a session I would run for casual gamers. Fair. Um, You know, like uh, I'm not saying that this is going to be a therapy session because it shouldn't be role. I mean, it should be for your character, but not for you. Exactly. Role playing gets its origins from actual therapy. Uh, Moreno. Anyway, it doesn't matter. History of role playing games. Super fun. Look it up. But you're right. (laughs) This is thing for our characters, and there can be. Uh, there are a lot of players who love this kind of stuff. I am sort of in that. I, I I wouldn't want it all the time, but there's a part of me that that craves a good character benefit. And so there are things like the Kids on Bikes RPG where you can talk about characters' relationships. There's a. I, I think smart role playing games are really doing more to build the relationships that already exist between characters. Uh, having that idea ahead of time in, in your session zero is important. So you don't want to make this all up on the spot. You don't want to like suddenly. So I'm upset because you and I are, have, have been best friends since childhood, but this, this, and this, you don't want to spring that on another player, but you want to be able to prep them. So you have to make sure that you've got that set up and they, everyone's cool with relationships that are set up. And if ever 
there was a movie to be inspired, a role-playing game that required checking your trigger warnings. <laughs> this is that film. Now, again, you don't want to copy this movie exactly because no one wants to play through something that you already know how it runs from start to finish. But if you want to work on some heavy stuff, definitely check with your players to make sure it's cool because this has pretty much every form of child abuse. Yeah. Just like there's, and, and I feel like if Stephen King is Stephen King, I haven't read the short story. I'm sure there's worse stuff in the book. So yeah, I, I definitely think if we're doing a session zero, those are the two I would prep my players with. Rafer, can you think of anything that you would you would throw in there? There is one other, which is I would probably go ahead and plant the premise of of the quest in the zero session because each mm. player needs to determine for themselves, and they don't necessarily have to share their answer. But I would bring it up at the zero session. What fuels your character's motivation, in this case, to find the body? So if we are using that right. as our scenario that there's a body that you're trying to find, why is your character what, – what motivates your character to find this? Is it fame? And that's okay. Is yeah. it something coming to terms with death, which is what it ends up becoming for Gordy? And Gordy never shares that with anybody else until they get to the body. Mm -hmm. And even then, Fern doesn't get it, as you pointed out, you know? But I think it's very important with that role-playing to for each player to determine for themselves what is fueling their motivation. We know what I, I think is kind of fascinating about this conversation compared to the conversation we had about uh, the quest, a la Frog Dreaming, is that you really could combine it so now imagine um <laughs> it's stand by me but it's not ray bauer they're going for cody walpole yeah um, and they don't know if cody's alive or dead but they know he's somewhere in the in the in the mountains in sure. the national park anyway not the movie we're talking about stand let's by talk the about quest stand by the quest <laughs> stand by frog dreaming uh let's talk about our truths uh these are uh, no matter what happens these things will always be true and this is the, the truths are what captures the spirit of the film right so regardless of what system you're playing you could do a stand by me in dungeons and dragons you could do it in star wars you could do a call of cthulhu i have some really good call of cthulhu ideas by the way um <laughs> you know now it's we'll talk about the systems i think there there's kids on bikes clearly it's a it's it's a kids on bikes uh system is designed for something like this mm, but there's a better one and we'll get to that later um the first truth is one that we have uh sarah tester to thank for and that is the dance i feel like the dance is going to be up all the time the dance is what your motivation is and what your fear is and that plays in so well with this film I want to tell you, when I first saw you put this on our shared document, I was like, man, he is going to lean so heavily into this concept. And then as I got to thinking about it, I was like, no, he's right. That's absolutely an essential truth for this type of, of game. If you were going to gamify this, you absolutely need that. Yeah. And, and you know, dance, again, is just a shortcut for, you know, your fear and, what, and how that fear motivates your character. And that's the beginning. That's actually... Really, the, the dance should be rather than a truth. It should be what's in your session zero. But um, I think it works. You need to know what your characters have. This is a point A to point B quest, right? So this is a journey quest rather than an exploration of a location that is important to it. The location is still, you know, this is a 20 mile. In, in fact, very similar to now and then that there's a very brief interlude of maybe about 15 minutes in now and then where they leave the location on their bikes to get information. They go on a little mini quest, then come back with that information. So, you know, a, a, a shortened version of this 
emotionally, they they learn a little bit about themselves in that as well. But uh, the important thing is there is some place that you're going, and that's it's not the destination, but the travel, right? Or, right. or the emotional journey that's important. But it is, I think, the truth is you're going someplace. You don't do stand by me static. Right. And the one truth that I did come up with this ties into that, which is shortcuts are dangerous. <gasps> Ooh, I love it. Okay. Because they take the shortcut with the junkyard. They take the shortcut with the, where they end up encountering the leeches. That's the shortcuts. Straying from that path is where they encounter actual danger. Oh, there's so, I mean, like just this narrative is just rife with symbolism. Right. Um, and if that truth is true, and I think it should be, then I don't want to say ticking clock. This is not a ticking clock story. This is not, this is one that you, I feel like this would be a really good one evening, long four or five hour session. Sure. Um, this is not a, this is not a short session. Uh, and I don't think it's many, it's not a campaign, right? Uh, I think you no. really need to capture the spirit and hold on to that spirit for kind of as long as you can. But if shortcuts are always dangerous, then players have to recognize that fact. Like that is not something that the the, the GM keeps uh, behind their, their screen. Uh, it is certainly something that they know. And I think the players can choose to do shortcuts. You talked about like a lot of the interactions and, and choices that cause problems are things that the characters choose. You know, for instance, Teddy doing the train dodge, which right. is such, like, I feel like every D&D game I have, there's that player who's going to do that. And it's like, hey, there's this this random thing. I'm going to do something that could risk myself for the entire party because I wasn't paying attention. And I, right. I just feel like, <laughs> like, I'm an agent of chaos. No, you're a jerk. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I love that. Another truth, whatever starts that quest is going to have a different meaning at the end. Yes. So, I mean, I like the idea that there's a body, but I think that you could come up with a number of other things as well. So- this is a really excellent opportunity for pairings, though I don't know if this is necessarily a truth, but I couldn't think of any other place that we would want, probably want to put it in that I think the players rather than the GM should come up with chances for uh, them and other players to do scenes together. So like, I think if, you know, the thing that happens in this is we get a lot of Gordy and Chris, and then Chris sometimes interacts with other characters, Gordy sometimes other interacts with other characters. But like, for instance, Teddy and Vert are kind of largely just in the background. Right. But I think if you're going to play this as a role-playing game, no one wants to be the Teddy and Vern characters that just kind of get ignored. So you need to make sure that whoever's holding the conch shell is getting a chance to like choose a partner for a scene, allowing you to fully expand those relationships. Sorry to bring a Lord of the Flies reference in, but I'm when writing we start down, talking is about Lord of the Flies a kids on bikes story. No, <laughs> it, it, it is it is not. It, it is very briefly a kids on boats story and then it becomes a kid on island. Kids on boars story. Um <laughs> Rafe, we have another truth for us. Well, I do think we do have a ticking clock potential if you take into account the fact that in the movie there is an adversarial gang, which is, you know, Ace's gang, decides that they also want to uh, pursue the body. They also want to find that fame. Then that becomes a ticking clock as far as who gets there first. Um, mm -hmm. However, it's not really a great story if Ace and the gang gets there first and 
you know, wins. So I don't know right. that you treat that as a ticking clock. You just do kind of what the movie does, which is they show up moments after the, the others do, if you want to have this antagonistic force following them. But it could help spur the group on maybe making them choose some of those dangerous shortcuts uh, because they feel like there's a ticking clock. Sure. And that's the thing, too, is at no point in time in this movie do they know that Ace is showing up. Right? right. Like they don't think that they know. And that's part of the kind of the, that fun little story. So there's the scenes where they keep on wanting to tell Ace about the body, <laughs> but there's a reason not to. If I were doing that like a mechanic, uh, every once in a while, I would roll a die in fully in front of the players going like, are they going to tell it? And the pressure is going to build, meaning that we would add higher modifiers every time you roll so that, you know, eventually it's going to happen, but they ha might have a head start. So, you know, I, I think that that could work. What we don't want is a Fratelli situation. What right. we don't want is a BMX Bandit situation because, you know, this – I want the players to be able to generate the challenges. Uh, however, if maybe the GM notices that the players are lagging – uh, or the story is lagging, or maybe they just want a little oomph. Maybe there's a moment where the the path that they're traveling on overlooks the highway and they can see the, the car heading in that direction. Mm. It's not an encounter, but it does kind of bring in the we need to hurry, let's take a shortcut kind of a thing. Uh, yeah, I think those are truths. I think, I mean, it's not a lot of them, but I think if you use those basic ones, unless you have another one you want to add, I think you're going to capture the spirit of Stand By Me really well. Sounds good. So the next on my list, I have how do we convert a story to make it more kids on bikes? And this is one of those things where I feel like between the quest and this, we definitely have talked about how not to do, how they're not kids on bike stories, but how could we tweak a non-kids on bikes? But to be honest, we've been pretty wordy uh, about this this movie because it's been really great. And I think the enthusiasm that we have for it, I feel like we've talked a little bit more and Unless we really want to have an extra long episode, maybe we just go ahead and discuss a couple of other things. What do you think? I, I think the one thing, just to gamify it more, not necessarily to make it more kids on bikes, is I probably would throw some more encounters in, depending on mm -hmm. how the players are doing with the role playing. Like if they're not Agreed. running with the torch as far as the role playing goes, I'm going to have to throw something in or it's going to be a really boring session. So maybe need some more encounters in there, some other ideas beyond, you know. Leeches. When we get into our storytelling mechanic uh, here in a second, one of the things that I have included in that is uh, I like a idea of a list of random encounters that the players come up with, yeah. um, but it's definitely something you roll on. So rather than it coming from the GM, it comes from the players. I always like the players to come up with something like this because it, it then informs the kind of energy level that the game should be having. But I also like the idea is you take a shortcut, we roll on the random encounter, but we no one knows what it's going to be, right? Right. So- if, if someone takes a shortcut, they're going to get a benefit, right? So maybe we figure out some way to actually gamify that by giving some kind of numeric bonus, extra advantage tokens, uh, you know, something along those adversity tokens, whatever it is, maybe pips that you can trade in for experience points, but you roll on the counter. And that's the other thing too. I, I, I like the idea of experience points is not because we defeated an enemy, but we've, we've uh, faced something about ourselves. Right. So maybe... This is a movie about characters leveling up, not from combat, from but from really using their experience points and leveling up, not when they have to take a long rest, but like right there on the road. It's like, hey, congratulations. You've learned how to use a firearm. Uh, you got up to level two. <laughs> you pull that trigger, Will Wheaton, you're going to fall down. 
I wrote something down. I probably should have mentioned a little earlier, but um, the idea of the, the four characters and their dance, what their fears are. And I did it in the form of questions. And I just, I got it before we get to your story, mechanic, Rafe, I got it. I got to do this. Cause I really like this idea. Okay. So the dance is, this is facing their fear and they have to overcome their fear uh, in order to complete whatever the question, you know, like before they can find the body, they have to at least come to terms with these ideas. Gordy's is interesting because Gordy's facing death and it's, it's about like, why did my brother have to die? But when the brother is out of the picture, the way that the narration is, is designed is how he can relate to his parents because they clearly only related to the brother. So right. the, the theory is, will my parents know me or do my parents know me? Because Chris says like, they don't know you. They don't know you. I mean, will they know me or will they accept me? Cause the fear is that he's going to become an invisible kid. He's going to, he's going to be completely ignored by his parents. He's going to lose them. It's going to be a emotional and familial death, you know, and he'll lose everybody who's important to him because a lot of this is about loss. And Gordy's facing the fact that he could lose probably the one person who now means most of him, which is Chris, but that's, that's kind of being left behind. Chris is being left behind because can he move past his family's reputation? We get that great story about stealing the lunch money. We find out what happens. What an amazing five minutes yeah. of film, uh, of character development. No one expects anything from the Chambers family, including Chris. Can he overcome that? Because right. Chris is the emotional backbone of, of the group. Uh, he's the support for everybody. He always, he's the cheerleader. He's in many ways, he is that leader, but he needs his friends because his friends are the only people in the entire town that will do the same for him. So can he move past his famous repetition? Teddy, oh, poor Teddy. What is reality? Because Teddy's father clearly has PTSD. Teddy's father is clearly someone who is not going to be, probably be the uh, the hero that he thinks he is. Um, and he, if he ever ever admits that fact it's gonna break him apart right and his question is uh you know what is reality is my father a villain and really even the if my father a villain doesn't have to really be in there it's just sort of like what is real what is the actual truth because teddy's never going to choose truth he's always going to take the myth he's right it's that quote that gordy says which is in my first taste of reality with chomper between myth and reality uh, and Vern's is in my joke because Vern is sometimes aware that he is the butt of the jokes and sometimes he's not. And again, Vern, difficult one because I think he's written to be that that butt of the joke. So Yeah. No, no. Yeah. And those those are excellent. If nothing else, again, because you're not going to be necessarily running those same ideas with right. the players, but it gives you a good model to go by. I think so. Folks, when we said that we were going to do this story, uh, this movie – uh, immediately, Rafe and I were both like, well, there's a story mechanic we have to work with. Yes. Uh, which is traditionally the story within a story. Um, so, Rafe, please, what is your story mechanic? Well, so my story storytelling mechanic plays on the scene we have where Gordy is telling the story at the campfire, telling the story of, of yeah. Lardass. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? And again, you 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 rein this in or, or let it go, you know, free for all, depending on how much time you're you're playing. Um, but wouldn't it be interesting if you have the player take the reins and tell that story within the story as kind of acting as the game master? So Drew is playing my group storyteller. He takes over and is telling the story within the story and the other players can interact in that story. And and he gets his, you know, five, ten minutes or whatever. And I even liked the idea of 
of instead of it just being Gordy telling the story, letting each of the characters have a shot at storytelling around the campfire. And so each of the players gets to briefly be kind of the game master and take over as they tell the story that their character is telling and the other characters get to interact in it however that that would fit with with their character. So, you know, Gordy's going to be telling the storytelling and the character who is the the, the player who's playing the Vern type character who just doesn't get it is going to be asking lots of weird questions and interrupting it and that fits his character. And is it going to be a little exasperating? Yes, but it also does kind of prompt some good role play within that. And I like the idea of other players at the table getting to take the reins as game master briefly to tell their story. I love that. I love that. I think that's brilliant. We haven't seen a movie that deals with summer camp, but in summer camp, telling stories around a campfire. This is the closest to camping movie I think we've we've seen, right? I don't think yeah. any other film that we've talked to has really had a, a camping scene. Telling stories around the campfire is an incredibly powerful way to tell stories. Uh, and it, for many of us, it might be the first time that we've gotten a chance to tell stories, you know, outside of like being on the back of the bus kind of a thing. Uh, <laughs> and I do really love your twist that the players then become characters within the story that they're telling as a always game master for the most part i love any opportunity to to kind of throw caution to the wind and jump into another story so i i heartily applaud that and i do also love that everyone gets a chance to to do that i'm curious is this simply a way to have fun within it uh or is there going to be some lasting gamification that will have some effect on the story or is this just um narrative fun i think of it as just narrative fun uh yeah. personally but but I, my brain doesn't work the same way that yours does uh and i i know you you mentioned a minute ago the idea of you know storytelling and like benefits from storytelling and stuff so i can see you taking my idea which was designed around the idea of nor- narrative fun and mm-hmm. and gamifying it further to make it something more sophisticated and and maybe even more attractive to certain people because there are certainly going to be players who are going to be like oh well this is just for fun I'm not interested oh there's XP involved okay one of the things that I think would work is if for this session um, I could probably given a couple of maybe a week or so or if I if the you know if the spark hits uh, an hour or two with a deck of playing cards create a storytelling mechanism that players could could use so if you actually gamify that. If everyone played a deck and maybe use like a poker system where you could ante up the story, um, you could win hands. So (laughs) you would win a hand and you would get to take control of the story. Now, I love that idea. I'm glad you do. It's not the poker part of it's kind of mine, but it's it's run off of uh, another storytelling game that I'll talk about when we talk about systems that we can do this. But I think there's probably a story within a story, a game within a game. I think might help players like you just mentioned who might not necessarily feel comfortable with the free form um, narrative, like taking the reins. Not everyone likes that kind of thing, but if there's a game involved with it, that might work really well. Mine clearly, we'd said story within a story. That was the, the, the prompt for it. Mine's fairly similar. I was thinking, I like the idea as we're walking. So everyone gets a chance to take turns talking and they're telling the story. So if you are telling the story, you're at the front of the line. So that there's at least a marching order in in that sense. So uh, I feel like that that could come into play potential. Every player gets to eat, be a storyteller and an audience member, and the audience 
gets points. So you're, you know, you might use tokens or pennies or dice or something along those lines, but someone gets a chance to tell a story with the understanding that every player is going to have to say something and you could play themes. So I think the idea is that the game master can go, all right, you have a story and the theme is this, which will, you know, prompts sometimes really help. But at the end of the story, the other players can give the player who told the story audience points, storytelling points as a kind of reward, like, you know, applause kind of a thing. Reward them for good storytelling, but you're limited by how much you can you can give. So, for instance, you couldn't give the first player who told the story. Everyone couldn't just give them all their audience points. That doesn't work that way. But then everyone would get a chance to tell the next story. But like I said, you got to up the ante because that's the whole point of storytelling is you got to build on. So the next person knows, well, okay, that's your theme. Maybe the the theme of the previous story informs the, the current theme, but then you give more points. I have people sitting around a campfire telling a story. You have Chaucer's Canterbury Tales going on. <laughs> and and it's isn't it just kind of the same thing in, in many ways? Um, and then whoever tells the last story gets all the rest of the points. So it it as long as their story, you know, the the story gets a thumbs up, thumbs up, they get all the rest of the points, thumbs down, they don't get any points. So there's there's you know, you can't slack right on it. But the point of it is your points then can be used to purchase um, the narrative. So in the same way that you, I, I like your story better, but this is what I came up with. In the same way that you take a shortcut, you could give, you could exchange X number of points to change a die roll. So for instance, if you need a 10 and you only got an eight, you could give out two story points, or maybe you could be really like stingy with it and say, well, it takes two two points to pay for a pip. Uh, you know, suddenly so you have four points if you want to build up to however you want to do it. Uh, I like X number of points will reverse things. So if something bad happens, you reverse it. Something good happens. It's still up to the GM to say what it is, but you can change the fortunes. Right. Um, or you can spend a certain number of points to take over the story from the game master, but for someone else's character, not your own. So you can't, you can't <laughs> use it to benefit your own character, but you could do it to play with how you feel like your other person's. So anyway, I like your idea better than mine. So I think it's hilarious. We're both sitting here going, Oh, I like that idea. Yeah. yeah. But that's, but that's what good role play. Like, right. That's what we brainstorm. Also, right. and I just had this like idea, try to imagine stand by me, but Gordy is not the storyteller. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Like what, what if it's Vern? Um, what if it's Teddy with Vern? It's that episode of King of the Hill where you get boom Howers point of view and everybody else talks weird <laughs> okay now i just want to see stand by me but it's rashomon where um <laughs> right. we get one scene uh and it's it's like suddenly they they go take a every time they take a short oh race that's the game every time they take a shortcut somebody there, there's a challenge and somebody else takes over as the storyteller. It's not even the game master. It's a game masterless system. The players are the ones, and you just change who the narrator is. Sometimes Gordy takes over two or three times. Sometimes it's Chris. Sometimes it's so-and-so. I think that might be... I think you just figured out the game that we're finally writing. <laughs> there you go. Um, we usually talk about set pieces. There's train tracks. It's not necessary. I think as long as you're following a path that you can only take on foot... Or with the slowest mode, you know. Again, there's there's so much symbolism. This this long path to maturity that they're taking. Meanwhile, the teens are just taking a car and they can get there quickly because they they get nothing out of it, right? Like they're not emotionally invested in this journey. They're just going to go find a dead body. They got some fishing rods in there, right? Um, right. And I think 
if we are telling stories before scenes, maybe locations that are informed by the stories that we're being told so that we have kind of uh, kind of a function for the narrative. So that those are the only two set pieces I think I, I think that could be generically added regardless of the system. Is there something else you want to add to that? The, the only thing, other thing is there is a benefit to flashbacks. So you might think about any you know, essential locations. Like we do have the clubhouse that they have. We do have Gordy's, you know, house that that is kind of an essential location for some. And we don't, we see the clubhouse at the beginning. Uh, that that could be done as flashback if you wanted to start and media res. Um, but I, I think those flashbacks are imperative for some of those personal stories that the characters are going through. So I don't know that there's necessarily any essential locations in there, but I did want to mention, because I didn't mention under, fla- under truths that flashbacks are, mm-hmm. I think, a valuable, but not to be over used element for a story of this type. Yeah, I think you could um I know I I have flashback tokens that I will sometimes give to my players right. um and you know they get one and there's ways of getting more so yeah give them that and, and they could flashback if they if they need to. It doesn't have to work for instance in the same way that it does with Blades of the Dark or uh, any of those systems that that use that powered by the apocalypse uh, flashback but um you know you could create your own flashback. I like that. I think that that makes a lot of sense. A systems to play. Rafe clearly Kids on Bikes is a great one. Um, right. But Wander Home, Wander Home is perfect. Wander Home is perfect. So Wander Home is a pastoral uh, traveling game created by, among others, Jay Dragon. And it is essentially a non-combat thing where you have been away. Your characters are heading home. If you have a home, uh, they meet along the road. And it's a series of asking questions. It's a it's a question asking and dice rolling game, but it's not a, a GM'd system. It's a GM-less system where the players essentially spur the game along based off of kind of what they feel the energy is in the room. Um, now, admittedly, they're anthropomorphic animals. You know, when you create characters, you're like, yeah, and it, this is not a Pugmire situation. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter what you look like, but like there's there's a certain it's a cottage core game, right? Like it's, it's all about comfort and tea and like the, the beauty of nature and admiring a sunset and being present in the moment and telling stories among new friends and making friends and stuff like that. So it is a a relationship game and the travel is the, the system that kind of builds into it. You can get a free, very rules light version on, just online i think just type in wander home pdf free it's a starter thing it's they they brought it out for their kickstarter it's one of those starters i i got the kickstarter i got the digital platform as soon as i got the book the art is so fantastic that i was just like this is ridiculous what i should have just done is bought the book they were out of print for eight months or so um i think there's a second edition now that or maybe it's, maybe it's just a reprint of the first edition it's out I don't have a physical copy. As soon as I see one uh, on a shelf somewhere, I will buy it without hesitation. But again, this is not a game that's for everybody, but I think in many ways, this movie and the inspiration for is not going to be for everyone. This is is a certain type of playing situation. And I think Wanderhome is just about the best setup for it. And again, you don't have to be an anthropomorphic animal. Uh, I think you can play the game and just ignore that whole part. But like, you know, if you like being an owl and rolling on a chart to find out what kind of sweater vests you have, then, you know, maybe this is the game for you. Similarly, if you, you like story, you had me interested in finding a copy until you said that, and now I'm back out again. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. Let me take care of the copy. We'll, we, you know, we'll play at some point in time. Uh, similarly, if you like storytelling games, I have three recommendations 
for folks. This is again, uh, you can roughly play uh, Stand By Me uh, with these. Um, the first is the Baron Munchausen game by James Wallace. Um, this is a game I discovered, I think, in 1998. A very simple version of it. It's gone up. But it is a game where you challenge other players to tell a story. So what I like about this is you can use Baron Munchausen in your Stand By Me RPG. So when it comes time to play, if you you know don't want to play my system and you don't want to play Rafe's system, you can play Baron Munchausen, uh, which is they tell a story. But the players can interrupt the story by going... Rafe, are you familiar with Baron Munchausen? Have oh, you yes. seen the um... yes, yes, yes. Okay. Seen the movie. Of course you have. Of course you have. It's it, it's it's the film that unites the world. They can go, but surely, Chris Chambers, uh, your father really was an outlaw, and they have to yes and that situation. It's like, well, of course he was an outlaw, but and they they build the story, and the next person goes, yes, but certainly this also happened, and he's like, well, yes, of course it did, but then I did this. So if you're familiar with Munchausen, you realize it's just a series of like a kind of abstract yes ands that just build and build and build and build until it loops around. Uh, the second one is Once Upon a Time, uh, Richard Lambert, Andrew Rillstone, and again, once again, James Wallace. Once Upon a Time is one of those games that came out, again, mid-90s. It is possibly one of the best storytelling card games out there because everyone starts off Once Upon a Time, but at the beginning of the game, they're dealt a different fairy tale ending, and the whole point of it is to steal the story away from another player by playing your cards and shifting the, the story towards your ending. But, you know, you, if you try it too soon, it, it won't work. And suddenly the story is taking this massive weird shift and then you have to bring it back around. It's a great game. Great fun. Uh, it's one of my favorite party games. And then For the Queen by Alex Roberts is a great one. Um, you are a part of a small uh, entourage traveling with the queen. The queen is trying to reach the enemy territories to broker peace. They are attacked. Do you defend the queen? That's the that's the prompt. You think, of course, we're going to defend the queen, but the deck is just a simple series of questions about your relationship with the queen that you come up with on the fly. And as you tell a story, naturally, this relationship changes between what what you think your relationship was at the beginning. Brilliant in its simplicity. I don't travel anywhere without a copy for the queen. Hmm. It's always in my car or it's always on my shelf. Um, it's always in a bag. If I'm going to be anywhere, there's other people. Um, I always bring that because that's the kind of game I like. So those are my recommendations for, for storytelling games that could potentially also be woven into something similar to this. So if you like those, it wouldn't be hard to tweak them to do your own version of the story within the story, the way that Rafe and I have done. Wow. That's a lot more wow. than I thought we were going to get. I really thought this was going to be a short episode. Uh, as always, Drew, you bring your A game to these things, man. Well, what I like is is if you think if it's too easy, it's just you know, you, you it's it's right there in front of you. If you have to work for it, you are usually rewarded for your hard work. And as you and I kind of you know behind the scenes were talking, I felt like we we developed some really good ideas and when you have a good idea or you have ideas, isn't it just a bummer if you don't talk about them? So we, I do apologize. We've gone on. A, uh, this is going to be our, probably our longest episode yet. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the super eight probably ran a little longer than this, but uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. So uh, join us in three weeks. There's going to be an extended delay intentionally this time. Uh, because between... this episode was so long. Right. Uh, but join us in three weeks for our Stand By Me intermission, where we'll discuss our second opinions. Uh, I think this was actually our eighth opinion uh, in this episode. So whatever. Uh, but what we might have missed about the film the first time around, and we'll go over listener emails, chat about what's grabbed our attention in crowdfunding, and Drew will select our next Kids on Bikes film. 
If you have opinions of your own about anything we've discussed today, you can join in the conversation by emailing us at the Never Say Die Podcast, all one word, the Never Say Die Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Never Say Die Cast. It is a private group, but all you have to do is ask for entry and you will be admitted. Uh, and we're on Twitter because Twitter still exists, although my understanding is it was down uh, and I missed that. But uh, we're at Never Say Die Cast on Twitter. Thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song and for Megan Daly for our amazing show's artwork. And remember, even if your game session turns into a complete and total perfect barfarama, never say die. Oh.